Hi, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serenia Pantala, and I have Onita Basu with me today. Thank you so much for coming to my podcast. Oh, thank you so much for reaching out to me, Serenia. I'm like so happy to be here and have an opportunity to talk about water and environmental engineering. Yeah, can't wait. Um, so to get us started, could you elaborate more on who you are, uh, where you're from, and what work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a professor of environmental engineering. I live in Ottawa, Ontario, which is the capital um, of Canada for our international listeners or whoever might be listening. <laughs> um, and so I'm a professor. I'm all, I also happen to be an associate dean, which means I, I kind of look at some more grad level work. And I'm originally from British Columbia, which has a lot of nice weather, but I now live in Ontario. Awesome. I, I know my, my cousin lives in Windsor, so we get to visit her every now and then. Yeah. Um, so I know you're doing work in like environmental engineering and water and um, wastewater treatment plants. So do you just want to like give a brief overview of the work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so first as a professor, I, I kind of have like a couple of umbrellas that I work in. And so one aspect is on the teaching side of course, because that's a fundamental part of being a professor at a university. So on the teaching side, um, I'm very lucky. My courses primarily deal with teaching um, undergrad students how to design water and wastewater treatment plants so we can take dirty water and make it clean so that we can either drink it or so that we can put it back to the environment so that we've got a nice, healthy, like aquatic biosphere. And then on the other side, I do my research envelope, right? So these are not specific, pro like not like kind of defined projects at the university level. These are where the interests of the researcher lie, mm -hmm. which also is in water for me. And so I look at like a whole scale, starting from both decentralized point of use water treatment all the way up to like the most technologically advanced um, units, which would be called like membrane and desalination technology. Oh yeah. And so I, I kind of, it's really fun um, and a bit challenging kind of working in both uh, spectrums of the field. Gotcha. So with um, like the, the research you're doing, it's, it's uh, just focusing on the research itself is itself like a full spectrum. You have um, very uh, low technology to very high technology. So, how, how is your research typically conducted when you're working with such diverse um, water treatment processes? <laughs> uh, how is it conducted? So it, it's such a complex question, which is really like spend a lot of time doing a lot of work. <laughs> Forget about work-life balance uh, a little bit. <laughs> um, no, but of course, in, in like, I think different universities function differently, of course, and different areas function differently. In Canada, of course, I think researchers work hand in hand with their grad students. And so we are a team that work together to like look at a problem and, and try and solve it or, or understand it better, depending on how it, it, it works itself out. So for me personally, I have kind of groups of projects and then I try and have like a small team of graduate students that are assigned to the project and then they help me co-solve it together to kind of see where we're gonna where we're gonna go with it. Uh, so I mean that's kind of like 
maybe not super specific, but I can give you like an example, like a more specific, tangible example, if you'd like. Yeah. Okay, great. So for instance, an example of a project that I worked on with the city of Ottawa uh, was to look at assessing how their filter systems work. So in a water treatment plant, um, not all, but most water treatment plants, uh, especially dealing with surface water, will have at some stage a filtration system, a granular filtration system to make sure that we're taking out particulates, right? So that the water's nice and clean to drink and there's nothing, there's nothing in it <laughs> that we, right for consumption. So I did a project a few years ago uh, with the city of Ottawa and what they wanted to do was evaluate their full scale plants. And they wanted to see how changes might impact their full-scale plant. But of course, we don't want to change a full-scale plant without seeing what it means uh, kind of like in a more safe environment. So myself with some grad students and the city looked at their pilot scale columns, so smaller columns that represented their full-scale plant, came up with a research plan on how to monitor for different impacts. And one of the things we were looking at was how two different treatment mechanisms uh, helped control something called THMs, uh, trihalomethanes or disinfection byproducts, which mm -hmm. we don't want to drink, uh, yeah. and how operating those plants could like minimize um, the formation of these disinfection byproducts. So I kind of come up with the idea, and then my grad students do all the work. They, you know, they went to the plant, they took the samples, they kept the filters running, you know, and then I, I get to ease back and we look at the data together and then we kind of come up with the conclusions from the, from the research. Gotcha. So at the, at the Ottawa filter system, so uh, what are like the disinfection products? These are like from the process of the wastewater treatment, like the, there's a disinfection step, like in the, when you're like cleaning the wastewater, right? Yeah, so in this case, it was drinking water. So okay. yeah, so the, the water from the Ottawa River goes through the plant, it goes through um, a bunch of settling steps, and then it goes through the filters, and then it goes through chlorine disinfection, right? To make sure that we kill all the microbes that are in there. And each stage, you know, so from settling out the solids to taking out fine particulates to the fine, you know, they all take out different levels of pathogens that could be in there. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge is, is when we have organics in water, some of them are in the dissolved form and they can pass through some parts of the process. So you add chlorine to the water, which gets rid of the pathogens, but may react with uh, non-harmful organics until the chlorine reacts with it and forms something called the disinfection byproduct, right? And then that disinfection byproduct over like a long-term consumption mm -hmm. level has been associated with negative health outcomes. So, you know, the US EPA, the Canadian system, we all have like guidelines that we have to be below. And we're always trying to get even like significantly lower than the threshold recommendations are. Right. So in the filters, we try to take out as much material as possible that could cause the formation of a disinfection byproduct. Right, that makes sense. You wanna yeah. decrease as much as possible. So let's take as much of the byproducts out. Um, yes. And how, so what are some ways that you might be able to do this uh, more efficiently, like taking out the byproducts? Yeah, so what our study was actually looking at is when you have filter systems, there's, there's two ways you can run a filter. 
Uh, one is called conventional filtration, and that's where you just focus on having the particulates and uh, kind of be removed from the filter itself. And another is called biological filtration. And in biological filtration, you actually allow beneficial, non-harmful microbes to grow on the media in the filter. So the, the filter is filled with like small sand particles, right? So you let a little bit of a microbe grow on it. So you have like beneficial, healthy bacteria, and they're going to eat some of the dissolved organics that would otherwise form disinfection byproducts. Okay, so it's a real kind of sustainable system because you don't have to add extra chemicals to it. You're kind of allowing something that would naturally develop to develop by kind of controlling some of the other processes. And then you can remove those organics and prevent the formation of disinfection byproducts. So our study was trying to evaluate the, the difference, the differences uh, in that disinfection byproduct formation. And so what we found in our study was that essentially by having it be more of a biofilter than a conventional filter, you could decrease the amount of disinfection byproducts in this water because every water is special by about 10 to 15%. That's true. Every water is like a little bit different. And it's, yeah. And it's, and it's really cool, like you're using a biological control method to figure out another biological thing. And yes. I, I think um, biological like remediation methods are especially interesting because there's so many interactions that we don't really think of in the ecosystem until it actually happens. And then we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Now that can be both good and bad, but um, yeah. in this case, it, it's definitely beneficial. So that like reminds me of this biofilm water filter that I've seen, um, which is like, this um, kind of a container and then there is sand, there's pebbles, cobbles, and then it just like gets slightly bigger like gravel um, things. And then in the sand, there's like a microbial community growing. And you basically just like put the water in and then let the water filter out and you get much cleaner water supposedly. So how do you think, do, do you think that this process is efficient in like um, countries that don't have access to like nice big water filters? and how would you suggest uh, people at other places do that? Yeah, that's that's great. So those those are called biosand filters. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, uh, the small homemade unit ones, they're excellent. Um, so I have worked with them as well, not recently, but in the past, and they work really well. They work a little bit differently than the ones I was talking about because uh, in those biosand filters. Uh, those ones in particular, the microbial community really grows on the top section right. of mm -hmm. the material. And it's like the water passes. It's, it's sort of like this cool thing. It's like you imagine the water passing through in these little filters uh -huh. and this microbial community there. And they're like this barrier. And they just, yeah, they just eat. Yeah. <laughs> they're just going to eat all of the bad things that are in there. And in fact, that beneficial microbial community, they actually also predate or like attack pathogens. Mm -hmm. right? Because the water environment isn't the ideal environment for pathogens. They want to be like inside a human or inside an animal. So if they get caught in that bio sand with the microbial community, then those heterotrophs come and like chomp on them. And then they, that's how you also help kind of control the spread of like pathogens through that water, as well as just like being physically removed. Um, so they, they work really well um, in small communities that don't have access to um, like a centralized water system. Mm -hmm. They're they're kind of like a promoted device. And I 
the caveat with them, which is a, depends on where you are, is the biosand filter works well in slightly warmer climates, right? Because you need to have enough kind of like heat available within the water um, to allow that microbial community to grow well. Mm -hmm. And it also works really well and only works really well if you have a constant water source. So if you have a community that's decentralized, doesn't have access to water regularly, they've got but they have access to a river, you know, like the water's there and they can go get it and put it through their biosand filter and the water temperature is like, you know, above about 10 degrees. Mm -hmm. They work, they work really well, actually. Oh, wow. Cause I, I know I've, um, I've heard about them, but I've never really understood. Is it, is it good? Does it um, really help? And that's, that's me amazing. That's mm -hmm. it's also like very cheap, um, yes. relatively cheap. And then, and then you have cleaner water. Um, yeah. So uh, in addition to that, there's like other, um, actually like that, yeah, like you said, this was similar to what you did in, in, in um, Ottawa, which is just like having these um, like layers, but in Ottawa it wasn't layers. Uh, so that's, it's cool that we can use this and use like this idea in so many different places. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of going over like uh, different kinds of water treatment um, types. So what are the different kinds of water treatment plants and how are they, and how, how are they different? Yeah, so I think the first distinction to, to make is that oh, there's water treatment and then there's wastewater treatment and they are very different plants usually. Um, and so the wastewater treatment is like whatever we flush down the toilet, right? <laughs> and so for a wastewater treatment plant, as you might guess, what we flush down the toilet is very organic in nature. <laughs> and so wastewater treatment plants are designed to help um, eat organics that are in the water that cause a really large oxygen demand in the river system. And that large oxygen demand like can, could consume a lot of oxygen in the river if you put it directly into the river system and it consumes a lot of the oxygen, the oxygen in the river level drops and you essentially kill the river, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so all the fish would die because it'd be like passing through a wall of a no oxygen zone and then they wouldn't be able to survive, for instance. Yeah. So with wastewater, we really focus on removing those organics so that when it leaves the plant, we're ensuring that we're not allowing for eutrophication to happen in the receiving water. And of course, we also control the level of pathogens that are being released too, although it doesn't have the same stringency level as a drinking water plant does, mm -hmm. right? And then for drinking water, right, there's, there's a couple of ways we get drinking water. One is from that exact same river system, mm -hmm. <laughs> hopefully a few kilometers upstream of the wastewater treatment plants, although we might think that at some point everything is downstream of something, mm -hmm. right, uh, or from a groundwater source, right, so water that we pump up out of the ground from an aquifer system. So in, in drinking water treatment plants, there's actually a lot less organics in it. And we're really focused on removing, well, we do focus on removing any extra organics if it's particularly high, but we're really focused on removing particulate matter and pathogens. Mm -hmm. And those are usually accomplished through just like settling out the, the particulates, you know, settling out, filtering them out, and then disinfecting them. Right. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's really important to make those distinctions. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think so far I've I've like kind of used them interchange interchangeably and that's they're very different. It, um, it it's totally fine. I get it all the time. It's just it's, it's one of those things when you're like a professor, you're like, no, it's this one or it's this one. <laughs> We're like all stuck on the words a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> No, that 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 really helps like uh, be clear about what we're talking about. So I know I, I think I've heard that this statistic that like seventy five percent of people are drinking wastewater. Um, so is it like the water from the wastewater treatment plant goes into the drinking water treatment plant, or is this just? I'm shaking my head, but of course no one could see me if I was just shaking my head. So, <laughs> so no, it's uh, I guess I was. Let me I. <laughs> Let me start that over again. I guess it depends on how big picture you want to look at it. Big picture is the earth is a ball, which is a contained system. Uh -huh. So in one sense, we're all drinking wastewater all the time, right? Sure. Because every, every drop of water we have consumed has been around for ages and ages. And so it's been everywhere. <laughs> I like to think the the water in this coffee cup is dinosaur pee. <laughs> exactly. It's totally dinosaur pee. Right. So from that perspective, maybe we're all consuming wastewater. But um, otherwise, no, it's very regional specific where your water is coming from. So generally speaking, groundwater sources, right? They they're very they're very clean, pure. They're kind of being filtered by the earth before before it's coming back out. Um, surface water sources is quite mixed. You know, the more urban of an area that you're in, the more pollution that's in the water. So it, it's it's much more likely, but it goes through the, tre the treatment plant, of course, and every treatment plant has objectives that they have to meet. So all that water is very clean, but you do bring me to two uh, kind of, I think, good examples about that. One is in, um, one's very, they're very famous examples. If you're in the, if you sit in the water, of, in the world of water, they're very famous examples. Um, one is Orange County, California. Mm -hmm. And so Orange, Orange County, California is probably like the first, um, you know, location, like geographically, I think, uh, especially in North America, that really kind of like went into a deep dive on reusing wastewater for drinking water purposes. And that is, you know, as we probably know, California is a, a very severely water stressed area. It's great for agriculture because it's hot, but it's also actually quite dry. And so with the population that there became water stressed very early. So Orange County, California has a really wonderfully integrated system where they take their, they have this groundwater recharge system and um, they have about, they take, they take their wastewater and not all of it, but a portion of it, they kind of split it. They take their wastewater and they split it into like three fractions. One fraction just kind of goes back to the Pacific Ocean, right? And then the other two fractions are then subdivided. One section of it, they, they treat it like intensely and then it goes back into their groundwater aquifer. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about 30% recharge that they do into their aquifer to meet the demands of the community around there. And then the other portion of the water they use for non-potable reuse, right? So they use it for like golf, golf course uh, irrigation. 
-hmm. you know, park irrigation. So, it, you know, so it's not, they're not using it for consume for consumption, but they're using it for reasons that we would otherwise normally just take drinking water and kind of waste it because why do we need to put drinking water and spray it all over a golf course? Mm -hmm. We don't need that level of water in it, right? <laughs> and then the, the other example I had was Singapore. So mm -hmm. Singapore, they actually have about 30 to 40% of their wastewater gets recycled. And again, it's split and it's split into uh, what's called non-potable, so non-drinking water sources, mm -hmm. as well as drinking water sources. Yeah. And I think what's really impressive in, um, in Singapore is their non-potable water actually goes to like semiconductor manufacturing um, and semiconductor manufacturing, or at least a, a section of it does. Semiconductor manufacturing, you have to have the purest a pure cleanest of clean it's literally just h2o molecules going into the semiconductor industry because you can't introduce any contaminants onto the chip manufacturing process so i mean the water that they get is even better than the water that we drink to a certain degree it's like very <laughs> pure and then they actually take their um their other water that's going to get reused for drinking and they have to mix it with their regular catchment water because through the treatment process they take out all the minerals and we need minerals in our body. So by mixing it back with their catchment system water, they're actually adding minerals that we need back into that water source, like right. before we drink it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So basically just very efficient ways of splitting our water and not spending so much money as to like treating it complete, like treating the entire source and then like using it for different things, but treating it based on what we're going to use it for. Yes. Yeah. That, that is um, just very, very nice how we've come this far in order to like figure out better ways and we're, we're going to keep improving, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I read about the work you are doing with Tanzania um, and imp improving access to clean water. Can you elaborate more on your work there? Yeah, I love talking about the project that I've, uh, you know, been blessed to work with in Tanzania for sure. Um, so I have a water project in Tanzania. Uh, it's in a location called Longido, and we work with an NGO there named Tembo. And essentially, like the backstory is that Tembo is an organization that works with women and girls on education and like kind of, they call them micro business opportunities. So providing opportunities for women in the community to kind of get, you know, economically invested and, and come up with small ways to make money for them. And also, but also really on education. And one of the challenges that came up through the years working with Tembo for them was that girls and women were missing out on educational opportunities due to various water related issues, you know, not having water or being sick from getting or being sick from drinking contaminated water and then not being able to show up. And so uh, I was very, I was approached essentially, like someone came and knocked on my door and said, hey, Onita, we're looking for some water people. Are you interested? <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm interested. That was essentially my original, was my thought process on it because I, I needed to know more and I didn't want to impose. Like really, I was so afraid of just like coming in and being like, I'm going to tell you what to do, which is not how I want to do anything. Mm -hmm. And so I met with the community members. So I flew over to Tanzania, uh, met with the community members 
And we started off on what was a two-year conversation. So we spent two years just talking to each other, learning about water, this back and forth. So, I mean, obviously, like, I have a bit of knowledge on water, mm -hmm. but I don't know anything about the community or how the community works. So what I would do is me and some undergrad students initially, we would come up with, like, water ideas. And then we would come and present them to the community. What do you think about these water ideas? And then we kept, we started with like 20 water ideas and we narrowed it down and narrowed it down until we came up with like one water conversation idea that was going to work and that people wanted, which I think was really important, right? Like obviously oh, people yeah. need to want it, otherwise it's going to fail because there was a reason that they didn't have access to clean water already, That's right? Hearing. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and so our whole project became embedded in provision of um, ceramic water filters, homemade, like point of view ceramic water filters, but we embedded it in an educational um, model, meaning mm -hmm. that the way it works is we, we work within these literacy groups. So there was women through Tembo, there's women, they get together, they've never had an opportunity to go to school or they had to drop out of school, like literally in grade two or grade three uh, to help take care of their families. But now they're, you know, these women are like somewhere between 20 and 50, they're interested in learning. And so we started meeting with them once a week as part of their literacy program, mm -hmm. talking about why do you want to drink clean water? You know, what's important about water and how do you use this device? It's, it's meant to be simple. You, it's just like a little, like, it looks like a little flower pot and mm -hmm. you pour water in the top. It's, it's, it's porous. So the water percolates through the bottom of it and you get clean water, but you still have to maintain it. Like every once in a while, you got to clean it. And they're like, you know, you want to clean it in a safe way. You don't want to clean it with dirty hands. You want to like clean it and then turn it over. And so there's, there's some techniques involved in it. And so we really wanted to support all of those steps. So people didn't get frustrated and just stop using it. Right. So, so we've embedded that as a program. We've done two groups of people. Well, I guess we've done three groups of people now. We've, we've provided filters to over 100 women, you know, helping out over 600 people in the community. Uh, we also have a school-based program. So we've provided filters to, I think, six local schools. And we go back every couple of months. We go back to the schools. We check in see how the filters are do they want us to help clean them again you know and really try to kind of keep just try to keep it going yeah so you really needed to work with like the Tanzanian people on in your project and 100 percent. yeah and trying to and uh I'm assuming have you been there uh yeah I've been there I guess I've been there now nine times Wow. Uh, so between 2015 and 2019 I, I went nine times maybe maybe ten uh and then and then and then COVID happened <laughs> and actually you know the best thing about the only good thing about COVID happening because it was really nothing um was our whole model was predicated on capacity building and what that meant was we were constantly training you know water champions in the community to be able to do the work so it wasn't us doing the work it was local people doing the work like yeah. building up their skill set and also building up their skill set so they could do it, but also building up their skill set so local people would be more comfortable potentially talking to someone who they already knew, talking from someone from the community. Oh, yeah. 
right? And then, and then when we, when COVID happened and we weren't allowed to travel, like in Canada, there was like restrictions on traveling for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, the good thing was the capacity of our local, of our local coordinators was so high, they were able to maintain the program. You know, we would message by WhatsApp, but they were able to maintain the program still. And if we hadn't started out with that model of capacity building, everything would have just crashed to the ground and fallen apart. So oh, it really yeah. demonstrated us like that. That was a really good choice. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, like you, you didn't have to be there for it to keep happening. It was self-sustaining, which, yes. um, which is really good. Um, so have you had any like experiences there um, in like, uh, maybe the teaching process, because I, because like from what you said, you've had a, you, you're teaching the people like the importance of, um, you know, like you're teaching them water literacy around making the actual thing, right? So I think that's um, super cool. So have you had any experiences while doing all of this? <laughs> you mean like interesting stories? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think the that's a really good question. I mean, I really, really love the people that I've met in Longuito. I think the biggest learning experience I had that's like kind of like a cultural experience mm -hmm. is in, in North America, in Canada, in engineering, let's just say people are very blunt and to the point. And if they don't like something, they will tell you to your face, there's no problems and it's fine, right? Like, yeah. I don't like what you're saying, you know, Onita, or I don't agree with you, Dr. Basu. It's, you know, and, and you, there's a certain learning process that happens there. But when we were working in the community, everyone is so polite and that is very much part of Tanzanian culture in general to be super polite. So the biggest challenge we had was that sometime when someone needed to say, no, that's not correct, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say no. Like it's really hard culturally for them to say no. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was good that we had two years of conversations because I learned a lot through that process of, of like trying to understand things and why the reason it's good to go slow because they'll, they'll kind of try and nudge you slowly in the direction they want you to go in, I guess. <laughs> so we, we learned, we learned a lot from that perspective uh I mean it was uh, I mean it's a patriarchal culture though so mm -hmm. there's some nuances there to it so one of the things one of the activities that we did before we started the water project was we obviously not obviously before we started the water project and because it's a patriarchal culture although we were working all with women in the literacy group we first had to secure the permission from the male leaders in the community that it was okay. So we did have to go through that step because the, the, the women rely on their male leaders within the structure. And so we would approach them and just say, this is what we wanna do, is it okay? So that was kind of an interesting step to go through because it's not something we would necessarily have to do here. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's just like understanding the community, understanding the process and making sure you follow kind of like some of the cultural steps mm -hmm. to get to what you need to like accomplish and to do it in a, in that kind of like polite, uh, format. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm sure, I, I'm sure that must've been like, um, learning about a completely different culture and being immersed in that for, um, as you said, you, you went there like nine times, which is, which is really, really a, a great way to 
learn a lot about a different culture and um, get exposed to how diverse our our people are. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. So while while you were there, um, one of the things that I think is very important in environmental science in general is the interdisciplinariness um, and how like if you 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 can't just solve a problem by using engineering there's also so many other things that you have to you have to communicate with the people you have to do um like actually implementing the solution and how how that will work with policies and stuff so how do, how did how did you deal with all that in Tanzania or in any of your other projects uh, Tanzania is a very good example of interdisciplinarity for sure I mean, there's the technical side of the problem, which is uh, identifying uh, like a point of use water treatment device that will work within the community and respect the demands of the community. But the bigger portion of all of this work was, you know, more directly within the social sciences, right? It's like the communication with the community leaders and developing that educational model within a literacy group. So working with women who haven't gone to school and who don't necessarily know how to read, right? Which was often the case. So we ended up, you know, like for instance, we designed a pictorial uh, pamphlet to help uh, access like how water works, but then also to work within the literacy group, we made sure that there was always like, like a word or two words underneath each picture. You don't necessarily need the word to understand the picture, but it does help embody the whole like literacy envelope as well. So, I mean, we work with a lot of people like <laughs> there was me, so I'm in engineering, right? And there was, there was uh, my one primary grad student as well from engineering. But we actually also worked with a business with a business professor whose uh, envelope was what's called social return on investment. So looking at not how like not at a capital expenditure or a capital exchange, but looking how social improvement leads to a societal improvement. So he helped us kind of like understand some of those envelopes. Mm -hmm. uh, we also worked with Tembo. We worked very closely with uh, the Tembo educational staff on developing the material, you know, as well. And one of the one of the women that we worked with, whose his name is Mary, her last name, her, her name's not Tembo, but everyone calls her Mary Tembo because she's so much associated with the organization. And, you know, she's a, she's a woman's advocate in the community. So we totally relied on her to really help us understand like how to function culturally within the community. And then, you know, I have some contacts at a university there who again helped us with some of the, the technical side of the proper use of like language there for even working within water. So there was like a lot of people <laughs> involved, which also took, you know, takes up time, mm -hmm. but it's it's necessary. So the People who are against interdisciplinarity are against inter interdisciplinary because when you include it, it requires a much larger time envelope to like get to what you want to get to. Yeah. But the outcomes, of course, are that you're looking at a more fulsome thought out project by including many different perspectives and many different skill sets into it. So, you know, I think I think for I think it works out well as long as you can kind of have a little bit of patience on it. Absolutely. I think uh, you have a really, really large, not even in an economic way, profit uh, when you use like inner interdisciplinary because your mm -hmm. outcome is something that's 
really, really, you're seeing the entire picture and it's not just one-sided or one or single-minded. It's, it's yeah. open-minded. It's, it's really, really nice to um, uh, use so many different subjects to solve one problem. And I think yeah. that's what we have to do with like climate change and everything um, is just look at how many different effects it has and what in what ways can we provide solutions. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, you can't do that without having, like I mentioned earlier, the policy, working with the people and all of that. So it's it's big. <laughs> yeah, it is big. And, 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 and I think you're completely right, especially with climate change. It touches people in so many different ways, so many different interests. And I think when we talk about climate change, we have to respect that different people come at it from different interest perspectives. And mm -hmm. so the best way to bring people together is always to be able to address some level of their interest. So if you include like one pocket and then another pocket, another pocket, it was like, oh, okay, I can get it because I understand that part of it. And then they're kind of okay with the other parts that happen, but really kind of drawing in multiple interests can, I think, really help people move forward. But if you just position something on like a unidirectional point, you can often lose people who are just don't have an interest in that part of it. Yeah, it has to affect someone directly for it to be impactful. I mean, yeah. that's our nature. That's our nature. It really is. <laughs> Yeah, so kind of um, uh, moving a little bit towards like how 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 do you think we can make um, water treatment or just like treat yeah water treatment or wastewater treatment or sewage water treatment how do you think we can make these more efficient and and yeah let's just start there I have another like climate change question <laughs> uh, so efficient is always such an interesting question to me because efficient can mean so many things I think because you could make something economically efficient mm -hmm. you could make something I guess you know carbon footprint efficient you could make something sustainably you know efficient uh -huh. you know so I, there, there, I think there's different ways to approach it and it's it's complex in the sense, right off the bat, it's complex because our drinking water sources and our wastewater outputs are getting more contaminated and mm -hmm. more variable. Like one of the factors of climate change is that it, it, it leads to less reliable, predictable rainfall patterns. So we have more intense rainfall than we used to get, or we have a longer drought suddenly than we used to get. And so as a result, that results in more variable water quality. And so it's hard to sometimes be efficient when all of a sudden our sources have more variation in them. And so I think we're kind of grappling with the concept of robustness right now mm -hmm. in water and wastewater because we need to create a robust water system to make sure that regardless of all of the variability on the input side, we can still produce a clean water that's safe to drink. Right, so essentially that's a challenging question to answer. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's totally challenging. I think first we have to get to robustness and then once we're at robustness, we're gonna look, we're gonna look more at, I think the driving factor is we always want to look at energy efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. Like otherwise, you know, you're you're always chasing one thing after another. You could make something super robust, 
but if the amount of energy it takes triples the water treatment plant, you know, consumption of energy, then we're also kind of exacerbating the problem, right? Because the more energy we use, well, eventually <laughs> that's just going to lead to more climate change. Yeah. Right. So how do we build a robust system mm. while keeping our energy consumption the same or minimizing our energy consumption so that we're kind of looking at it from that big picture perspective. And I think it's a challenge. <laughs> and I don't, and I think that's, I think that's why we still need so many people in environmental engineering and environmental science, because we are not anywhere close to solving problems right now. This isn't what I would call a mature field. You know what I mean? Like a mature field is one that's been around for a long time and we kind of know the answers, but we have to maintain it. This is like an ever-evolving field right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think so. Maybe if I'm, my conclusion is now that like the like just looking at um, like economic uh, climate change wise, the the factor we should look at is how much energy are we using in our system and how robust is that system, um, and that that mm -hmm. is our two main variables to try. I I think they're I think they're two main variables. They're two main variables for me at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now going to your background. Um, so how is like how did you get interested in environmental engineering? Because throughout this conversation, we I've been listening to you talk about all your different like um all your different uh th the things you're doing. And I think that I think where where when you started all this, it would be really cool to see that you know the <laughs> character arc <laughs> yeah well I guess I guess it's kind of like there's like two aspects to the to the arc of how I got to where I was right now all related to my undergrad degree for sure like in my undergrad degree where I was doing chemical engineering and I was like just happy I picked a field like oh okay I'm gonna do chemical engineering it's fun but then I didn't know when I started that I was gonna end up in water right mm -hmm. But then I, there was two kind of fat things that happened to me during my undergrad. Um, one was through work experience and two was through just like one very specific lab that I had uh, in my second year of undergrad, which is like really early on. And, and it just sort of sat in my brain for a while. But when I was in um, like it was a, like a second term, second year course, so halfway through my second year, we had this really cool lab where we were treating, um, we were treating like a wastewater source and it had a uh, dissolved copper in it. And we used this electrochemical technique. And the best thing, it was so cool because you didn't see anything in the water. Like the water looked clear because the copper was dissolved in it. But mm -hmm. then we played it out the copper onto an anode. So at the end of the experiment, what we saw was like, oh my gosh, we had this visible amount of copper that we took out of the water that we never knew was in there. And I would just thought, whoa, what's in, it was like, whoa, what's in our water? Yeah. Kind, of, kind of a moment, like what could be there that we don't know about? It was really amazing. So that was definitely in my brain and like was like a long-term inspiration. But the other thing that happened was when I was an undergrad, I was really lucky. I had two wonderful jobs, um, but they were both in the oil and gas industry and they were both in the middle of nowhere. Okay. <laughs> like, and so, and I love, and I, to be honest, it, it might sound funny. And I know like people are like, oh, oil and gas, but they were, they were really good jobs. I learned a lot. It was, it was really good process engineering knowledge mm -hmm. that I learned through them. 
but between that, I, I kind of had this thought like, okay, I love process engineering, but I also have this like, where do I want to live? And then I had this little water treatment lab in the back of my brain. And then it was like, oh, you know what? Everyone needs water. Like I could live in a small town and someone needs water. I could live in a city and someone needs water, you know, and everyone was talking about water as well, right? Like who doesn't like to talk about water? Who doesn't want to know a little bit about water? So I kind of put those thoughts together and I thought, you know what? I want to specialize in like water and wastewater treatment because it's fun, it's fascinating, it's inter in interesting. And technically I could end up anywhere in the world by being a water and wastewater specialist. So, I mean, hands down, who doesn't want to do it? So that was, <laughs> that was kind of like my career arc in terms of the field itself. The origin story. Yeah. <laughs> And I, and I love that thought, especially like, where is our water really coming from? I think, I think it's important to ask that in like every stage of, of like, whenever you see a glass of water, where we are, how many microplastics are in this has been like a big thing that has been upcoming. So yeah. actually I'm curious now that I'm thinking of microplastics, is there a way in water treatment plants, not wastewater, <laughs> is there a way for us to deal with like taking out microplastics from the water? And is that something we should concern ourselves with right now? Yeah, I, we should definitely be concerned about microplastics. I mean, they are everywhere. It's really scary almost, right? Like who knew? I didn't know, like microplastics is such a new field. Like it was new to me, you know, six years ago, I think was probably the first time I heard the term microplastics, right? And now it's like really been evolving since then. Um, so can I just say, aren't I glad I'm a filtration expert? Because <laughs> that is definitely one of the ways that we take out microplastics from water is through filtration because they are particulate matter. And so when you have a well-designed filter system, it will capture those microplastics and remove them from the water source so that you're, we're not passing them through the system. I think it's still an evolving knowledge base though. So we still have a lot that we're learning, but filtration, and there's many ways to do filtration, but filtration is definitely uh, a good way to take out those microplastics. Gotcha. See, I, I was I was wondering because I've seen these like new devices where there's like um, absorbing microplastics with these selective absorbers or and I'm not sure is that something maybe uh, people are thinking about when they're thinking about treating water, but it seems like filtration is what's working even for like the smaller particles, which is great. Yeah. Um, and and I just I just want to say uh, so I'm I've done I'm in the United States Earth Science Olympiad uh, international team this year. And one of the, the project we were doing for our national team field investigation was looking at microplastics in different sources of water, um, like across the United States. So we looked at someplace in California and Washington state and Pennsylvania um, and New Jersey, which was very, and Massachusetts. So- Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> what did you find out? What did you find out? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so of course, so in Washington state, there was um, like microplastics were changing with depth. So that was our main focus there. It was looking at, um, you know, what kind, so we, we counted like fibers versus like um, just big pieces of like normal, like plastic pieces, um, well, microplastic. Um, and how, how are they, uh, like, how's the count different? 
Um, in California, we were just we were looking at how does human population um, like associated with the microplastic concentration because that's something really cool. But one of the interesting things we we what is um, what happened was when someone left a filter out just outside, lots of micro that was like the most amount of microplastics on that filter paper that they've ever seen, which is just very weird because that means there's microplastics in the air and we've tried replicating that. Um, and which I don't think we actually got to doing, but just like knowing that we've that we've seen so many fibers and chunks of microplastics on just from the air is really worrisome. Yes, yeah, because you're like, how is it getting here? Where is it coming from? <laughs> how yeah. do we control it? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So now, um, so, so um, I wanted to ask you about what do you think of undergrad versus graduate students needing to prepare for university? <laughs> <laughs> you might um, recognize it. <laughs> so I, that, yeah, okay. So what do I think about undergrads versus graduate students preparing for universities? I think for undergrads, right? So undergrads means that it's a high school student who's soon about to start university and become that undergrad student. What have I seen, I guess? You know, there's so many like students who are really smart who don't have to study. When the, and then when they come to university, there is no university program that doesn't require work. It just doesn't happen. And so the biggest challenge I think is if you are a smart grade 11 or grade 12 student who doesn't have to work, you have to find a way to make yourself work, like join something extra where you've got to do extra just to start that practice of working. Because when you start undergrad, it's time management, it's studying, it's working, and there's just there's just no way to get around it. And I always think it's very disheartening to students who come in who were very bright students in high school because it was just too easy for them. And then, and they didn't, they didn't try and do anything extra either. <laughs> and then they come and they're just, they're really unprepared and they often, you know, I don't want to be too cruel, but sometimes they crash and burn really is what happens. <laughs> and so you can avoid that crash and burn by learning that you have to figure out how to study or you have to figure out how to do something that's going to give you that extra kind of like push mm -hmm. to kind of realize that you're going to have to work in undergrad. Um, and then for grad school, the challenge I see in grad school, most grad students do great, like most do great. And I guess it's almost the same, this not maybe it's not the same thing, but for grad students, when you're doing like a research project, all of a sudden you have all this like independent time to think and get stuff done. And, and sometimes it's, it's a bit scary because it's kind of like you have all this sudden responsibility on your shoulders. I think of it as independence and independence of thought and freedom of thought but it can be stressful to some students. So making sure that you get along with your potential supervisor, I think is really important. Um, and meeting with your supervisor. Uh, supervisors are often very busy. So coming to a supervisor's meeting prepared, like 
don't just sit there and think they're going to like lead the conversation. Like the, my best outcomes with students are the ones that come and they've got an agenda and they're like, okay, Dr. Basu, this is what I was thinking. What do you think? And da, 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 da. And we have this really, then we can have a really great, really effective back and forth uh, conversation and then take advantage of like activities. Like, so at, at Carleton, we have something called the three minute thesis competition hmm. where a grad student presents their thesis in three minutes. It is so hard. <laughs> It is so hard to summarize, you know, like, you know, two years of thinking into, you know, <laughs> three minutes and yeah. do it effectively and eloquently, <laughs> you know, um, but it is a great exercise and learning how to transfer knowledge um, really quickly and how to like disseminate uh, information in an effective manner. So like just taking advantage of all those kind of extras is always good. I will say to, to um, while I was looking at uh, your your lab, I was seeing these three minute thesis, the, thesis, oh. hi, theses, <laughs> and I was just watching them and I thought they were so, so like, it was so, so cool how someone could, so, so intelligent, how someone could like um, summarize years of work into three minutes. And I just think that's absolutely fascinating. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. I, if you looked at my website, you can see that I'm a big fan of the three minute thesis competition but also uh I'm just a big fan of like kind of like pushing and supporting my students to really excel and do their best uh out of their programs in general and I think we all feel really good um when that happens <laughs> mm -hmm. so yeah I I just have the best research group honestly like I've, I've been very lucky to develop a research group where people get along, people are helpful, and then it all, like all sorts of success just kind of builds on itself when you have such a great team. Yeah, and this kind of um, leads to my next question, which is what advice would you give to any young um, people, uh, under maybe underrepresented people who are leaning towards like the environmental engineering field? And what do you need to learn in order to pursue this field? Uh, well, the first one is just do it. <laughs> <laughs> not to borrow a slogan or anything like that just do it I, I mean it's kind of a tricky question in some ways because it's not a tricky question at all like it's a totally straightforward question my my challenge in answering it is um so for listeners who can't see me uh like I'm a I'm a I'm a mixed race woman in STEM really is what it comes down to and but I my personality so I could have had challenges and yeah you know there I could talk about challenges that I experienced along the way whatever but in the end I have always just done what has been interesting to me I don't listen to naysayers so that would be my advice don't listen to someone who ever says like, don't do something that's related to an intellectual pursuit or some pursuit that in the end, you know, is for your own betterment. Do you know what I mean? Like, if it's something that's going to rise you up and someone's saying, don't do it, don't listen. <laughs> because it's something that's going to make you feel good in the end. Anyone that's trying to be negative, I just, I just tuned out very early on in my life. And that's how you can be successful. Right. So that's what I would say. Do what's in your heart, really, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now we're taking, um, learn from Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and also my, my question, my other question was like, what would, what do you need to learn in order to pursue environmental engineering? Like computer science, uh, maybe 
Um, yeah, things like that. Hmm. So environmental engineering in and of itself is quite interdisciplinary, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of going to university, I think there's a couple of like typical paths. One is like through chemical engineering. So a lot of schools have chemical engineering, mm -hmm. which because of the process aspect of it leads itself into environmental engineering, which is you know where I am now. Mm -hmm. Some universities have direct environmental engineering undergrads, like Carleton, my university has a direct environmental engineering undergrad program, um, as well as environmental sciences. Uh, and then also some, some universities have civil, well, most universities have civil engineering, mm -hmm. And then depending on which university in civil engineering, some of them have an environmental focus, which is kind of confusing because <laughs> there's like a lot of options to take. Uh, one thing is though, like in terms of like courses, like of course, if you're gonna be in engineering, you have to kind of love math a little bit. That doesn't go away. It's like just part of what you do. Uh, and then environmental engineers are often quite good at chemistry. Mm -hmm. So if you like chemistry and you like math and environmental science or environmental engineering can be like a really good draw for you, I think. That's wonderful. Um, actually, right. Like I think my, my main passion is environmental like engineering and it's good because I, I also enjoy chemistry a lot. I took AP chemistry um, like last year. So I think wonderful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> And just to close off our lovely conversation, if anyone would like to reach out to you, where can they do so? Uh, I guess they could look at my website and in my website is my email address uh, as well. So I, I <laughs> you could just Google Onita Basu. <laughs> I can put like links and things in the episode. Yes, yeah. And I think it pops up, right? Yeah, maybe just put a link in because I, you know, <laughs> you can reach out to me, they'll find my address, it's pretty public. <laughs> <laughs> for sure well once again we've been speaking to dr anita basu and i just really want to thank you for um joining me here and sharing your thoughts on um, the differences in uh, water treatment and in treatment plants let's just say that <laughs> and, and like how how your work in tanzania how interdisciplinariness is so important and advice for anyone who wants to go into environmental engineering and i've really appreciated your time and thank you so much Oh, Saranya, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And I I mean, obviously, I stalked you on the internet a little bit. And I saw <laughs> some of the stuff you've been doing. And like, if you are an example of the future, then our future is looking like really great. So thank you for asking me on. <laughs> well, thank you for being on the, the podcast wouldn't be complete if I didn't have the people who knew the stuff to be there. <laughs> Well, yeah. thank you also to the listeners for listening. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'd love to hear, but off record, I'd love to hear how your um, your competition ends up doing. 